Whether I'm turkey hunting, scouting, or glassing for game, I never go into the woods without my Vortex Optics. With their VIP warranty, I can go with confidence because it'll replace any glass damaged in the woods. I dropped my binoculars out of the deer stand last fall, and Vortex got me fixed up and back in the tree in no time. Vortex makes the highest quality and affordable rangefinders, binoculars, and scopes on the market. Y'all check them out at vortexoptics.com. But of all the floats I've done all over the world, I've done 88 rivers, and my goal is to do at least 100. And Ponca de Cows would be the top of the top. You're listening to the Ozark Podcast, presented by Inland. We sit down with men and women from the Ozarks that have a passion for the outdoors. Our aim is to listen, learn, and pass along their knowledge and experiences to help you become a better outdoorsman. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kyle Lee. If you want to watch exclusive full-length video episodes with each of our guests, receive a free Ozark-inspired sticker every single month, and get a shout-out on a future episode, then sign up for the White River Club on our Patreon. The link is in the show notes, and your support goes a long way. As always, don't forget to like and subscribe. Now, here's the episode. What's up, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of the Ozark Podcast. You've got Kyle Veet on the mic, as always, and I am flying solo today without a co-host. Um, but good news is you're not just going to be listening to me ramble on by myself uh, because I am actually joined by a very special guest for this episode. And um, we're sitting here in Ponca, Arkansas, which if you've never been, absolutely just beautiful, beautiful countryside, landscape, um, Boxley Valley, the whole thing. If you've been here, you know. Um, but before I introduce my guests, I just wanted to address the audience and let you know the guest that we've got on this podcast, the reason why I wanted to bring him on is for me, one, I just think he's got a really awesome story. You know, at, at his core, he's an outdoorsman. Uh, he's, he's been in the Ozarks for a long time, coming up on 50 plus years. Um, he's lived in Arkansas his whole life, but he's got a really deep appreciation for the Ozarks and he built his business here. Um, which many of you know and uh, probably have used at, at some form or fashion at some point in your life. Um, and, you know, his business is around doing something that he loves, which, again, is another cool thing. And then the last thing that um, I think really makes our guests unique is the way that he's impacted so many different people, whether he knows it or not. I mean, millions of people coming through his doors for his business and um, really like the premise of his business is connecting people uh, with the outdoors and, and helping people get outside, um, which to me, I just think is an awesome thing. Uh, and so I'm happy to welcome uh, to the podcast, the founder of the Buffalo Outdoor Center, Mr. Mike Mills. Well, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you? No, I just keep getting better and uh, I appreciate being here. Absolutely. Your, your place is awesome. We're sitting here in, in BOC in the, in the main office and we're up here in the, in the, attic or loft wherever the offices the are the dark side the dark side of the business <laughs> not the front facing happy smile customer side uh but super cool place i've always i've been here probably 10 15 times over the years coming to rent canoes and um just i just think it's an awesome place i'm even i got a hat down here in the lobby that i'm gonna buy today too just y'all got some really great stuff but um just wanted again thank you for inviting us down here and uh, to do this podcast. Uh, it's 
Absolutely my pleasure. Awesome. I want to start with um, with just, you know, this last couple of weeks, you were actually, we, we had talked about seven or eight weeks ago doing this and you had a big trip coming up. And so you just got back from a six week trip out west to Utah, Arizona, and you were going to hunt petroglyphs, right? That's right. What, what was that like? What, what did your trip entail? What were you guys doing? Well, uh, my wife and I got fascinated with petroglyphs about 21, 22 years ago. And um, it's a completely different landscape than here in the Ozarks. So it's high desert, um, but you're still looking for a wall, very much like the bluffs on the buffalo, uh, in a canyon. It it involves a considerable amount of hiking. Although there are some petroglyphs that you can find close to a, your vehicle. Mm-hmm. But uh, many times you hike uh, four, five, six, seven, eight miles round trip to, to find what you're looking for. Um, it's just a fascinating, it's, it's, it's Indian artwork, uh, petroglyphs being those that are pecked into the rock and pictographs being those that were painted on the rock. Okay, and so these the, are carved actually in, the, embedded in the, the rock. The petroglyphs are embedded into the rock. Gotcha. They've been pecked in uh, either with a deer antler or a sharp rock or some form of tool that they used. And this is so many thousands of years ago, do you know? Yeah, that's the cool thing is from about 800 to up to 15,000 years ago okay. in the United States. Okay. Uh, and think about that. 15,000 years ago, Europe did not exist. <laughs> and yet there were humans in Western United States. That's crazy. That's wild. So you're going out there, and are these known locations where these petroglyphs so, are? Some of them are known. Some of them you're looking. You, you don't have specific uh, GPS coordinates or anything like that. You're right. You're you know they're in this canyon, so you're looking at canyon walls at, at big boulders and stuff like that. And and uh, it, it, it's a treasure hunt. Yeah. Uh, and that's what's cool about it is uh, most of it's on BLM National Park National Forest, and so it's free basically. And uh, it involves hiking, which is great exercise. And then the reward is finding it. And oftentimes uh, when you look at a panel, which means there's several petroglyphs on it, um, there are more questions than answers. Mm. Uh, Looking at the figures, looking at the animals, looking at the symbols, the uh, things that they have pecked into these rocks. It's like, what were they trying to say? Yeah, yeah, what were they doing? And were they, is the idea that they were recording their own history, that they were just telling stories? I mean, what do we take from the petroglyphs now as we look at them? Well, some of it is uh, all of that. Uh, Some of it is uh, telling a story, the hunting panel, which has a lot of animals and then depicts somebody with a bow and arrow and all that kind of stuff uh, can be describing uh, a hunting scene. Um, But there's also weird things like perhaps maps, perhaps mm. elements of the, um, a mountain range uh, pictograph-type story. Yeah. Um, it, 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 the, once again, there are more questions right. than answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's cool. I've never been out that way to, you know, I've been out west to go like skiing and um, to California and stuff like that, but I never really spent a whole lot of time in that area and going through those canyons and looking in like the caves and the red rocks. That's always something I wanted to go see just... Well, you know, different there, that landscape there's is. just something fascinating. My favorite petroglyph ever is of a saber-toothed cat. 
Oh, yeah. Now think about it. The guy who pecked it had to have seen one. Yeah. <laughs> and so how long ago did the saber-toothed cat exist? Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't know those answers, yeah. but what I'm telling you is it, it's like picking up a dinosaur bone, and we actually find some dinosaur bones looking for petrograss every now and then, but there's just something fascinating about a bone that was alive 64 million years ago. Yeah. It's the same way with a petroglyph. Somebody sat there and in a precarious position sometimes and pecked their form of art onto a rock. Yeah. And how long did that take? Was it an hour? Was it two days? Was it two weeks? Yeah, right. Uh, and 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 so it's just there's just something fascinating in the human nature of finding petroglyphs. Yeah, that is really cool. Like a treasure hunt, like you said, that's pretty cool. Nice. Well, I want to I want to get in now to um, obviously BOC. You know, this is this is your business that you've built uh, started in 1976. And so, you know, really over the last almost 50 years, um, you've spent your life here uh, for the most part in Ponca, Arkansas, building this business, running it. And it's obviously changed a lot over the years. Uh, so I want to I want to get into just your story and all that. But um, I wanted to just see I wanted to ask you, you know, what, what I said in the intro, talking about how thinking about your impact on outdoorsmen in the Ozarks and, and how many, and people outside of the Ozarks. I mean, people come here to see the Buffalo, which we were talking, which I would consider, and I think many would consider the crown jewel of the Ozarks is the Buffalo River. What, how do you think about the impact that you've, you've made on people? And do you see it that way? Because, you know, I think from the guy who's, who's run BOC and has got so many people on the river using your boats that you built this business through, do you see it that way or, or do you kind of, you just sit back and you're like, I just ran a canoe business. I think I probably actually see some of it. Okay. I, I don't see, I, I probably don't see the totality of it all. Yeah. But I know for a fact um, that I personally uh, used to put in canoes at the river and teach people how not to turn over, mm -hmm. to get down on their knees and lower their center of gravity in the canoe and to have the front person know what a draw stroke was and, and the state of the inside, the curves on the river. And I know for a fact that impacted thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe they didn't use those terms or those, uh, that advice, right. but they got it. Yeah. They heard it <clears throat> at least. And, um, and then when it comes to the cabins, um, you know, I, I, when I first started building cabins, I just wanted to build a place that me and my family could go. If we were going to Colorado, this is what I would want to stay in. Mm, yeah. A log cabin with a fireplace and a neat little kitchen so I could cook some of my own meals and a, a deck on the front porch that I could sit and swing on. And and uh, uh, and then I just listened to my customers. Mm. And they wanted a, a honeymoon-type cabin. So right. we built a honeymoon-type cabin, and then they wanted a bigger one so bigger families could meet and that kind of stuff. And so we did that. And then over the years, uh, built four or five more honeymoon cabins because they were so popular. And, and and not everybody that stays in them was on their honeymoon. Maybe they were reenacting their honeymoon. Right. I, I, but but they, were, they were connecting with each other, mm -hmm. and that 
proved to be a very successful formula mm. for a cabin. Yeah. And and then the there was more demand for a larger meeting place. And so we built a, a lodge. Is that the River Wind Lodge? The, the River Wind Lodge. The big one, yeah. And uh, you know, eighteen beds and therefore thirty six people and and a great room big enough that you can put almost a hundred people in it. Yeah. Uh, and and feed them and a kitchen with two dishwashers and two ovens and so so the the equipment to accommodate a group that size mm-hmm. and and all of those have been very successful because we listen to our customers first mm-hmm. and that's a lot of our success is we have we have we have put items that they were looking for and then we have adjusted and added based on what our customers told us yeah in a lot of those cabins you actually built yourself by hand right I was involved in, I think, all but one or two of them as far as building them. Uh, in fact, I would be what you would call the lead contractor. Yeah. Right. Uh, sometimes there's, uh, I think I have four cabins that just me and one other person uh, built. That's awesome. And uh, therefore I did, when you look at the hardwood floors and when you look at the electrical systems and all that kind of stuff, I, 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 I taught myself all of that. Yeah. Uh, Interestingly, I used a Reader's Digest do-it-yourself book. <laughs> yeah. And that's how I learned to lay rocks. That's how I learned to uh, put down hardwood floors. That's how I learned to do electrical work. Um, all of those things from just a simple Reader's Digest book. That's crazy. I think about today, you know, if you were to poll a thousand men in the U.S., how many guys know how to build a log cabin from scratch and do all the groundwork and the electrical? And I like there might be just you left. Oh, I think you would find one or two, but the, yeah. the, the percentage would probably be fairly low. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's cool, and I, I think that speaks again to just um, you know your outdoorsmanship and and being in the land and being able to do the hard work and spending the time here. And just understanding your customers and what they were looking for and, and what they wanted and, and then giving that to them, you know, actually hearing it. Um, I just, you know, super cool story. So I, I want to ask you, early life, what got you interested in the Buffalo? What, you know, where are you from? Who were your influences? And um, just tell me a little bit about your story. Well, it's pretty, pretty simple. I grew up in Lowell, Arkansas on a farm. Um, my father was a, uh, business administration person at Pelfrey's Rabbit Meat Company in Rogers. Rabbit Meat? Rabbit Meat. Pelfrey's Rabbit Meat. Oh, cool. And, and dad ran that business. Meanwhile, uh, because we had a farm, we raised cows and we rented some of the land for green beans and wheat and other, other products that were in Northwest Arkansas at that time. Um, but dad liked raising cows and so... I, uh, when, when he was at work, it was up to his sons and I was the oldest and my brother Don was right behind me and we, it was our responsibility when we were quite young to go feed those cows in the wintertime, hay and, and, uh, to watch for newborn calves and that kind of stuff. And, um, for those farm people who have pulled calves, I pulled my first one when I was 11 and a half years old. Wow, and uh, with the help of my brother, yeah. Uh, but it was a February day, and it was windy and cold, and I was never so glad to get back to the barn in my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but what Dad really gave us 
was responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that gift is probably the greatest gift I received from my father. Mm-hmm. That same father, um, in, the, in the summertime, we would go set up camp on the bank of a river, whether it was the White River before Beaver Lake or Osage Creek uh, uh, west of, of Cave Springs, Arkansas. Yeah. Um, and we would float and fish. And uh, we would, at first we borrowed a boat from uh, a, a church neighbor. And um, then at some point in time, I think I was about eight years old when dad actually bought the boat for 50 bucks. <laughs> and it's a Grumman sport canoe, which now hangs on the top rung of the Buffalo Outdoor Center. Oh, you still got and it here. I still have it. Oh, and um, that's what I learned to paddle because Dad wanted to fish, and so he would put, I was the oldest, so he'd put me in the back of the boat, and I would paddle while he fished. And um, I taught... That's a good son right there. I, 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 had, I had to teach myself to paddle. Uh, Dad didn't want me hitting the side of the boat and making a lot of noise. And when he wanted to stop, he wanted to stop. And yeah. uh, um, <laughs> that was your and, job. And, and and so over a period of uh, you know three or four summers, I learned to paddle a canoe. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, you know, once again, that was the one of the greatest gifts that of responsibility. But then the second one was the love of rivers and the outdoors. And mm-hmm. the first time I floated to Buffalo was with my dad. In 1965, I was 15 years old. Yeah. And unlike the White River and Osage Creek, the Buffalo's gigantic bluffs just, I couldn't get over how beautiful they were. Yeah. And and the water was a little more exciting. It wasn't quite as still. and, And while all of it moved... The buffalo just moved a little more, mm-hmm, yeah. And uh, and so when I got to college, it was the late sixties, uh, early seventies, back to nature ecology movement of the nation was in play, sort of uh, late Vietnam, end of Vietnam. Okay. And um, I had a canoe and a tent. I knew how to go run a river and paddles, and and uh, I, I knew how to run the shuttle, and and so at college. Well, I was a popular outdoor guy. Yeah, you're the guy to know. And, uh, well, it was easy to get a date because they all wanted to go do it, <laughs> you know. And uh, um, so we had, I had a lot of fun. And, um, uh, you know, I spent a couple of years in the Marine Corps, finished college, and uh, put myself through graduate school renting canoes out of my apartment over in uh, Fayetteville. It was a little condo type of apartment. And uh, so I could put a trailer of canoes in the backyard and, and I actually started my first business, which nobody knows about. It's called the Wilderness Company. Okay. And it existed in Fedville, Arkansas for about a year. Really? And But I was coming to the Buffalo all the time. And so I got the opportunity to come over here and uh, manage the business right down the road from Buffalo Outdoor Center, so Lost Valley Lodge. Yeah, right. And so I managed it for a couple of years. And then the person who owned it tried to sell it to me and lease it to me and it ended up just being one of those things where I went down the road a little ways and started my own business, Buffalo Outdoor Center. Gotcha, gotcha. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. Take me back to that time because I... So you're in college and you're studying... You were pre-med, right? You were studying... Yes, sir. Biology? Biology. And so was the plan, was the goal to be a a doctor? You know, I don't... I think what happened with me in college is I, I just... 
biology was the closest thing I could get to the outdoors. Mm, okay. uh, before I got accepted to Hendricks, I, w- I had also applied to the University of Illinois and uh, Colorado State University in Fort Collins because I wanted to be in wildlife management. Okay, yeah. That was sort of my dream before my real dream came true. Mm-hmm. And and so Hendricks biology was sort of the closest outdoor-related subject I could take. And at Hendricks, there it was there was always a group of med students. Right. And I became friends with those guys, and they were all we were all together in class and all that kind of stuff. And so eh, there might have been a, a little time in there that I was looking at med school and and uh, but I I didn't I didn't have I had the aptitude but not the uh, uh, grade point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got the complete college experience. I was on the track team and head of the ecology club, and you yeah. know just you were busy. Uh, you weren't uh, focused uh, on the GPA uh, quite uh, so much. And, and, and so uh, and so when I graduated, I went to uh, the University of Arkansas and and put myself through graduate school, literally renting canoes out of my apartment through the wilderness through company. the wilderness company. That's awesome. I did not know that. And so you were taking, you were keeping all the canoes at your apartment, yep. and then bringing them over here, basically. Yep, I had a trailer, and my uh, back then I was uh, focused on guiding, so I would try to get groups of people, and I had two or three regular customers: a group of dentists from Missouri, a group of lawyers from Northwest Arkansas. Uh, yeah, um, that that I would not only guide down the river, I'd cook for them. So I'd set up the meals and all that kind of stuff. I built myself a cook kitchen. I had a great big grill. Uh, I had the menus down to basically what I wanted to eat. Yeah. But everybody else (laughs) seemed to want to eat that too. Yeah, sounds good, man. uh, uh, And uh, it it worked out really good. I I thought the money was going to be in guiding, and it really ended up being in the canoe rental. Yeah. And and plus it wasn't near as much. Yeah, not near (laughs) as much work. Yeah. Uh, that works both ways. You get paid more to do a little bit less work. And yeah, that works. Yeah. So, and so you were guiding. You were doing like smallmouth tours where you were trying to go. Sometimes we would fish. Most of the time, it was just scenic canoeing or whitewater because I'd do it on the mulberry or the big piney. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, one time I I did it on the, the Johnson shut-ins up in Missouri. Um. Uh, so I, I, once again, I, I thought it was going to be all about, and I look now at what I was charging to for per person per day to feed them, mm-hmm. and it was like ridiculously low. Too low, yeah. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. It was like $20 a day for steaks and, uh, you know, the the egg, bacon, and sausage breakfast and and all that kind of stuff, and it, and it was, and and me doing all the cooking and yeah. buying and everything else. It was just, un, you, you, it'd be hard to buy breakfast for <laughs> what I was charging for all day. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's probably a good thing you didn't stick with that business because you probably would have got burnt out or realized you weren't charging enough for that one. Well, of course, what I was really doing was trying to duplicate the outdoor businesses in the West, right. which were guided trips with full meals and so uh but but it worked out it for for the midwest for arkansas it was better just to be in the canoe rental business and 
And, you know, when I started in the business, there it was very common for people to, there was the Bill Houston canoe rental and the Tommy Harding canoe rental, and people named their businesses after themselves. Mm, okay. Well, I, I looked at it and said, you know, I want to build more than just a canoe rental business, and I want to build it so that if someday I want to sell it, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't really have my name attached to it. Right. And thus the name Buffalo Outdoor Center. Right, which is a perfect name now because you guys do so many different things. Well, it, 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 literally it took about 25 years after I started the business for it to become the business that I had envisioned when I started. It. Yeah, yeah. So when you started it, you figured out, okay, maybe the guiding thing isn't right. Maybe the money's in the shuttles. I'm going to start doing that. You you were living. You put yourself through grad school in Fayetteville, and then you started managing a place over here. Did you know that you were wanted to move to Ponca? Like, had you already made that up in your mind, or was it just kind of like, ah, oh, this thing happened, and I'm going to go do this? Well, Ponca was, of course, when I was in Fayetteville, um, most of the guide trips were Ponca to Camp Orr. Okay, and and that's where people wanted to go, and so that's what brought me to Ponca over and over and over again. But after, when you go do the rest of the river, Ponca's the place. Mm. And when you go do other rivers, you come back down the mountain into Ponca and it's just, it's unlike almost anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. It it has a third world quality of peace and a, a feeling. Yeah. And yet it's right here in the middle of the United States of America. Yeah. It's really like it, it you almost kind of get transported back in time, especially driving all, along that road. You see some of the old homesteads and the houses. And then, of course, when you started, there actually weren't elk here. You were here before the elk got reintroduced. Yeah. Because they were native, but then, you know, things happened. But you were here before they even got reintroduced in like, what, 81, 82? Yes. Um, so you've just... I mean, it really does. It has that feeling. I, I was at Irby when they brought the first trailer load of elk in from Colorado and let them loose. <laughs> you got to watch them run I out of the trailer? Them. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That is so cool. They actually brought in grouse as well. Uh, and I was here when they turned the first grouse loose, but they did not take hold like the uh, elk did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's too bad. Grouse would have been would have been cool. Similar to quail. I mean, quail have had struggles here in, in the area and... You know, we don't have that many left, so I'm not surprised that the grouse didn't make it. But it's cool that the elk, I mean, that's one of the things I think of when you come down this road and uh, and you see all the elk on the side of the road. It's like, you know you're here. It's like you made it to Ponca and it's Elk City. Yeah, I mean, you know, we used to say a traffic jam in Ponca was when four cars showed up all at once. Now it's 400. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely taken off. So, okay, so you got the business started in in '76, and then what what were the early days like of running the business? What was what was Ponca like? You know, the people. I know were there other outfitters around here? Or were you guys pretty much the only one? Uh, Lost Valley was the only one in Ponca until '76, and Buffalo Outdoor Center started. Um, so there, now there's two of us. There were others on the river, and then, you know, the National Park started in 72, but it didn't really start functioning as a National Park till about 78, 79. Okay. And that's because there was, a number one, there was a landowner injunction until July of 76. But then as the Park Service finally got 
a majority of the property and begin to bring in rangers and staffing and that kind of stuff. Uh, in 78, they decided to put the canoe rental businesses under a national park concession. Um, and there was a lawsuit and because they were telling us how to do what we did, but they didn't know anything about what we did. Mm, yeah. And But they were also trying to bring us up to modern safety standards and that kind of stuff. But, but when, when we first started, we hauled people in the back of a pickup truck. Okay. If, if we went to Camp Orr and we didn't shell your car down there, we'd put you in the back of a pickup truck and bring you back to Ponca. And I've seen 20 people in the back of a Nissan pickup truck. Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, now it had a rack around it, you know, so the chances of falling out were not that good great but yeah had there been an accident it would have been a serious one yeah um so things like that uh, uh more standard safeties with vehicles and transportation uh canoe trailers didn't have any kind of we didn't even use license plates half of them didn't have lights uh yeah. there were no marking of whose trailer it was or anything like that and so the park service gradually brought all that up to date and those are good things they're, they're not bad things they were they were looked at back then as extra cost, mm-hmm. but yeah. they were really things that should have been done to start with. Right. Um, and so, you know, the the early days, uh, you also have to remember that the Boxy Valley and the road to Mount Sherman were not paved. They were dirt roads. And so dust, mud. Yeah. Uh, and then when they started to pave them, they did all the dirt work one year, um, uh, my record that year, because basically you're dealing with uh, clay and chert. Well, chert, when you run a rock crusher over it, gets very sharp and splintery. Mm, okay. So we were having multiple flats per day. Ooh, yeah. My record in one day was seven. Seven flats that I changed on the side of a road in one day. My goodness. And But it was, you had to carry two spares for everything, every, pickup truck, every trailer, if you didn't have two spares, you weren't going to make it home because you were probably going to have more than one flat, maybe even on the same tire. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then the next year, they actually paved it, but they chose April and they oiled a different section of it every Friday afternoon. They oiled it? They, they, they put down a, a, a layer of oil. Oh, what for? Well, that's how they paved roads. They 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 first put down a, a, a after they've done the dirt work, they they gravel it and they oil it, and then eventually they come back and pave that. Okay, gotcha. Well, they oiled it four Fridays in a row in April of 1978. Oh man, my light blue Scout was black <laughs> because you couldn't drive. They, they were thinking, okay, less traffic on weekends, but there were five times more traffic on weekends. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Some people are coming. And, and and I happened to be in the business, and so back and forth, back and forth over that old road. And, and you know, if you had a white Monte Carlo. Ruined. And, and, and well, it's not ruined. The good news is, is when it's all over with, Kerosene took that oil right off. Okay. I mean, it was literally just, it took a little elbow, it took a little rubbing, but but it all came right back to new. But but you had a lot of disappointed customers and mad customers because their vehicle had now oil on it, and you couldn't drive slow enough. There was no way. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't, number one, do your job if you drove 
that slow um, because you had to move certain number of cars down to the end and they needed to be there when the people got there. So right. anyway, that was a fun two-year experience, 77 for the flats and 78 for the oil. Yeah, uh, sounds like some challenges for a small business just getting started. You're kind of, you're having to bootstrap together and just work hard and get through it. It almost sounds like. Well, and you're um, running it yourself out of your pickup. It's like the ultimate, just pick it by the bootstraps. You know, we went to 10 ply Michelin industrial tires and to keep from having flats. And even then you still had some flats, but, uh, um, it, it was, there were challenges and fortunately we were young enough that, uh, we just took it in stride and did it. Yeah. Uh, nowadays I'm not sure I would have persevered like that, but I, I, I would tell you that's the total secret of VOC. It's called perseverance. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. doing whatever you had to do to make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in those early years, that's what it took. Yeah, absolutely. So then, so you get started, you've got some challenges there, but you you persevered through it. At what point, you know, what kind of numbers were you seeing? Were a lot of people coming here or what, did it start slow and then kind of take off as people as the Buffalo River got the national recognition and people realized what was here or, or how did that progression go? You know, the very first year I, I rented canoes, um, it probably wasn't more than a thousand or so. If you look at the whole season, one canoe for a day, maybe 1,000. Um, by the time BOC and and really when you when you think about the 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 national park became a national park in 1972 but once again it was 77 78 79 before it really started functioning right. and national geographic march of 1977 the following year that that was when an article uh came out on the buffalo national river uh, it was called america's little mainstream and the photographs were taken by Matt Bradley, an Arkansas native. Uh, there were two other photographers before him. Um, so National Geographic sent three photographers here three years in a row, 74, 5, and 6. And in March of 77, produced this article. 1978 was the peak attendance on the river. Uh, literally, it sort of set the bar. Yeah. Um, basically... By 1979, the Park Service had limited the number of rental canoes on the on the river, and it plateaued. Um, the for BOC at about 4,000 canoes one day per year, and and okay. and that number, when you look at the total river, somewhere in the early eight or 80s, that that number of canoes plateaued. And the only thing that moves it up and down is the weather. And what happens is if in the upper district, so Ponca, if if we go to our normal season, so the first week or two of June, and then it gets too low to canoe, but then there's a year where it goes through mid-July. Well, that's 30 more days of getting to rent a canoe if you're renting 25 canoes per day during that time right. times 30. And so when you look at the visitation and the number of canoes rented from the 80s until now, 
When you see a spike up, it just means it rained more that year. When you see a spike down, it means that there wasn't as much water. That, gotcha. that, so in, in our history, we've, we've, we normally, we, we like to say we'll get through the first couple weeks of June. Mm-hmm. We have closed as early as May 22nd, which was before Memorial Day weekend. Yeah. We have gone as long as August 16th. Wow. So once again, August 16th was our best canoe rental year ever. Yeah. May 22nd wasn't a very good year for us. No. no. <laughs> and, and, so, and so once again, if you look at that plateau, then up and down, it all depends on what the weather does. Gotcha. Because you can only do so many boats a day. That's right. We're limited by the National Park Service yeah. on a per-day rental. Gotcha. So then when did that change? I mean, is it still that way, or when yep. did when were you able to start kind of growing? And and at what point did you really see like, oh man, this business is it's taken off, and like this is going to be something big. Like we know that this is going to be a success. Well, really, that was in the early '80s, because once again, that number has plateaued even till today. Mm, okay, uh, the number of canoes. Are, are, what what has happened is is somewhere back in the '90s, early '90s. We were we convinced the park service that we needed a couple rafts on each fleet because during high water rafts were much more safe. Mm, yeah, and and they agreed with that, and so they they allowed us a couple more rafts. Then there was a period somewhere I believe around two thousand five or six where they actually increased that number of rafts from two to six. So we went from you know, two rafts to six rafts. Right. Then they got a little bit more flexible and said we could rent kayaks, but what we had to do is we traded one canoe permit in for two kayak permits. And and then they got more flexible where we could, if the water was low, we could put on canoes and take off rafts. We could put on kayaks and take off canoes. They gave us the flexibility of whatever the water level was, we could add or subtract still the same number of people, basically. Right. But it gave us a, a more safe, viable way to put people on the river. Yeah. Um, and so the total number of people increased some. Gotcha. Um, but as far as the the canoe rental business, once again, it plateaued many years ago. Um, what, what happened for Buffalo Outdoor Center is in 1982 – we built our first cabins. Right. And cabins turned our business from four months out of the year to 12 months out of the year. Yeah, that's a great point because you were talking about, you know, you're looking at the spring. If you're only open for a couple weeks, couple months out of the year, as far as a business standpoint, it's like, man, that's what do you do for the rest of the year? Well, and and that's what early on in the, in the formation of BOC when we were only at four month out of the year business March April May June um, you had to just do me personally I, I got on construction crews I cut firewood I hauled rocks I did everything I could do to just make ends meet mm-hmm. I, I tell the story of 1977 I could not buy my wife a Christmas present really because I did not have ten dollars yeah um, and I ended up, uh, I made a, handmade a coupon book 
and the coupons were for foot rubs and <laughs> doing the dishes and washing the car and back rub and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And on the front, I put a million-dollar coupon book. To this day, that was probably the greatest Christmas present I ever gave her. Yeah. Um, Man, that's cool. That's special. It, 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 it really wasn't at the time, but when you look back at it, it beat everything you could have ever done. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, but it was by force. I didn't have $10. Yeah. Times were hard. Uh, well, you just you did whatever you could do to not spend money. Yeah. And now, in 1978, I pigeonholed some money, and I did not use it until Christmas. And I was never, not a, a Christmas since then, have I not been able to buy my wife a Christmas present. <laughs> Good. So you took care of that. You saved up some money, so every Christmas but, but, you got but, something. But still, once again, as I look back, that particular Christmas, 1977, was probably the greatest Christmas present I ever gave. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, okay, so keep going. So you're, you know, so the the BOC's taken off. You've done canoe rentals, but that plateaus at a certain point. Oh, one question I had was why did why does the National Forest um, National Park Service why do they limit the permits? Why how come, you know, what is the idea behind having less people on the river? Is that just a protection standpoint or? Yeah, it it it's it, uh, well. First of all, if you go to the Illinois River over in Oklahoma, just across the border from Arkansas, you can see fifteen hundred canoes at one outfitter, mm-hmm. and there are ten outfitters. Yeah. There are 12, 15 outfitters on the Buffalo River, and if each of us had a 1,000 canoes this river, you could walk down the river on canoes. Mm. And so they, the, the Park Service is limiting access because of uh, human impact. Um, right. And, and, and with the advent of the recreational kayak, so say five, six, seven years ago when that became popular, people are now able to buy their own kayak, put it on their own car, come in two cars and run their own shuttle and go float the Buffalo River. And and it's all basically for free other than the cost to them of gas or whatever. Um, But I look to, I predict that we will actually see, because the impact of the number of people is getting greater as this river has become more popular, um, the, the Park Service is right now putting to Together, a new river management plan, which will probably come out in another couple of years. Okay, my guess is is that somewhere in that new plan is a restriction for all visitors. Mm. They'll have to have a permit, and when you go out west, you see it. Oh, really? Well, they're doing that other. Go go places. to Colorado and try to climb Long's Peak. Gotcha. If you don't have a permit, you can't do it. Gotcha. Um, and that's just for a hike. Yeah. And so when you look at the parking lots uh, in October of the Goat Trail, of uh, Hemden Hollow Trail, of Lost Valley, of, of uh, Whitaker Point, which is outside the boundary of the park, they are on overflow. Mm. And, and, and the Park Service says it's their responsibility to control that, to control that. 
And the only way they can do it is by permit. By permits. So permit only. How does that then impact your business? Is Do people get permits through you or do you have a certain well, number? Well, once again, this is a... Hypothetical. We're looking into the future. I gotcha. I gotcha. Uh, so we don't know whether the permits will be obtained through us, online, through the Park Service, uh, which is probably the most common way it will happen. Yeah. Uh, they may be able to give permits to outfitters for certain things. I, I hear you. I, I'm... I'm I'm You're not. Just, I'm yes. not the government, so I, I, I. In fact, I've brought up a sore subject to a lot of people. Yeah, you know, a, a lot of people don't want to have to get a permit to come, come here. Yeah, and I'm one of them. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, hear uh, I, I like to go walk Lost Valley, sometimes every day. Yeah, it's a part of my workout routine. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so, so anyway, we'll, we'll see how all that goes, but. Uh, um, the, the, with the number of crafts going down the river, the number of bodies going into the Ponca Wilderness area, uh, I think the Park Service is going to find a way of of uh, limiting or restricting that down some. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that is. I could see how that would be a sore subject. I, you know, myself selfishly just want to come whenever I can and whenever I can get away, but. I could see, yeah, that's that's a big deal. I, why I wanted to ask you about that, but obviously you're just guessing because that may or may not happen. And uh, well, we, we we on this trip that we just came back off of, we wanted to go uh, camp in Chaco Canyon, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you have to have a permit, and to get that permit, you may have to be three, four, five months in advance to get it. Wow! And so, I don't know that the Buffalo River will go to that extreme, but mm-hmm. we'll. Once again, I, I just see language and I see really uh, almost a need because some days there are just too many people. Yeah. Um, and what's the answer? Yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, so back to your story a little bit. So you started building cabins um, and that really kind of turned the table in terms of what Buffalo Outdoor Center became and then how you could kind of become a year-round sustainable business. Um, Did that allow you to stop doing all those odd jobs, cutting hay, construction, and all that? Did you get a little bit more focused and centered here? Well, uh, believe it or not, um, before I started building cabins, I I got hired at a state job. That's right. Uh, And I was the director of tourism for the state of Arkansas. And I used to go to the Kiwanis Club and the Rotary Club and make a speech. And, and when I did, I would say, well, 109 people applied for that job. Oh, wow. You'd have thought out of that many, they could have found one better than me. <laughs> but I did get the job. Okay. And, uh, and so that left my brother-in-law at the time in charge of Buffalo Outdoor Center. And um, I, the interesting part is after four years of being director of tourism, I had I had some research in front of me, which was the state parks cabins and what kind of occupancy they were running and what kind of rate they were running and all that kind of stuff. And and it just, once again, I, I looked at it and said, this is the type of thing that I'd like to do if I went somewhere else right. on vacation. And so why not do it here? And so I literally... Um, started building cabins based on the research that I had available to me while I was the director of tourism. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I got an SBA loan, so they had the serial number of my watch and every other piece of anything of value that I owned. Yeah. They the, they were supposed to give me money in March. I didn't get the money until August. Um, oh, man. It, it was a, a long time ago. Well, it was a nightmare. The The application ended up being an inch and a quarter thick. Golly. Uh, well, it had serial numbers of everything I owned. Uh, but, but it was just one of those things where um, I don't think the bank would have loaned me the money. I would have liked, I think the only reason the bank gave me an SBA loan was because the government was putting pressure on them to do so. Mm. Not necessarily to me, but to make some SBA loans. Right. And so they took a gamble. I'd have liked to have been a fly on the boardroom wall <laughs> when they discussed it, but, yeah. uh, uh, cause I don't think they'd, uh, well, I was a, a, a young, uh, probably arrogant young man, yeah. uh, confident in himself, and and if it hadn't been for SBA, they they they, they had nothing to lose. I had to come up with twenty percent down. SBA loaned me eighty percent, or loaned the bank eighty percent to loan me. So they had literally nothing to lose. Right. Uh, now they beg me to borrow money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot different nowadays. Uh, uh, and and so uh, it's just one of those things where it worked out. We we got our SBA loan. We built our first six cabins, and it, the difference was is now in December, you you might have only had enough money income to make electrical payments and the phone payments, but the year before you had cabins, you had zero yeah. income. Yeah. And, uh, and so it made us a full-time deal. And, and then literally as, as time has gone by, we're, we're busy every day of the year. Mm -hmm. There is no slack time here. Yeah. And what are you guys, I mean, now I think of you guys, and I think I even read it somewhere, it, you know, Buffalo Outdoor Center is kind of known as Arkansas's premier wilderness resort. What all do you guys do now? What do you offer? Well, the good news is, is the, as the, as we watch the canoe rental business plateau and limit itself, uh, we we tried to find other venues that would fit into what we do and where we're at. And so we didn't want a water slide. We didn't want a, a Ferris wheel ride or anything like that. Uh, we watched a, we, we, we became members of, uh, uh, of an outdoor association, national organization, and we watched other members and, and, and I got on the board and through that leadership, uh, I was able to make a lot of good relationships and we watched other, um, businesses like ours put in zipline. Mm -hmm. And so after their first year of success, we decided we'd do that, and we did, and it has been a great success. Yeah. Um, it, it offers basically families, uh, you know, there's a weight limit and an age limit, and other than that, there are really no limits. And, <laughs> and so it's it's been really, really fun. And we have a, you know, just a, a turnover of, of new customers all the time, and it gives them something it's a it's a half day. It's a two and a half hour zipline tour. Oh wow! And so you're you, you go through eight zips. Oh, I did not know that. And and so it's not just a zing and it's over. It's with. It's not one. You're huh. actually going you, you, around. You, you climb a fifty eight foot tall tower, and the first step is that high off of the ground when <laughs> you take your very first zip. Wow! 
and it's a thrill that that uh, no, almost any veteran's thrill seeker. It's still a thrill. Yeah, that's crazy. And, and then when you're with a, a a partner or a group or whatever, it, it's such a tremendous experience. You know, you're taking pictures and you all end up on the same tree platform, and then you do it again and do it again and do yeah. it again, and 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 so it's a, a, a great adventure. Um, and it fit into what we did. It fit into the topography of the property that we own, and and it's not tremendously impactful. Um, we've seen bear, elk, deer, everything from the zip line. Oh, that's cool. uh, so we've we've seen some really had some really cool stuff. We've we've done. Uh, you know uh, what I what I didn't see when we put in the zip line was the fact that 80-plus-year-old women would be zipping this. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have thought that would be your well, no, customer. But, it's a, but, but literally, I mean, I can remember the 92-year-old that was going around America mm. doing zip lines. Yeah. That was her. She just said, I'm going to go zip. And <laughs> not only was she going to do it once, she was going to do it 50 times. That's amazing. It's like the world's coolest grandma. Uh and so, you know, we've had stuff like that happen. And and then um, uh, mountain biking, of course, became a, uh, has become a tremendous impact in northwest Arkansas. Yeah. And we have been very, very fortunate to have a great relationship with the Waltons and the Walton Foundation. And they helped us put in the uh, BOC downhill mountain bike course, which is literally probably the most difficult one in Arkansas. Really? Uh, it has one blue run and about five double black diamond runs. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and so terrible. you can literally jump over the top of your partner. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, even if he was in a truck. <laughs> and, that sounds terrifying. You, well, you're not a mountain biker yourself, are you? I, I am not a mountain biker. Uh, I have I've walked the course many times and... And, um, you know, when you get my age, it's one of those things where downhill mountain biking may be, I might do the blue run one of these days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the people that come here, and I mean, I've, I've talked to people from, and they're not just from Arkansas. Uh, they, 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 the course ends right here in our parking lot. And so often when I come in the center, there'll be a couple of mountain bikers out here having finished their first or second run or whatever. And I'll ask them, how was it? And they'll all go, this was awesome. Yeah. Man. Yeah, I mean, they, they just, if you are truly a mountain biker capable of hard S-turns and jumping, we dropped 1,300 feet in six miles. Wow. To give an example, at Crested Butte, Colorado, Colorado's longest mountain bike course, it drops 1,200 feet. Wow. We drop 100 more feet than it. Oh, my goodness. In, it, in Arkansas. In the same amount of time, six miles? Is it, is it about comparable uh, six miles? Yeah, I think so. That's crazy. Uh, I, I mean, I would not even think that. Just, I mean, you think of Crested Butte, the mountain, I've been there. The mountain is just huge. You wouldn't yeah. think that you'd be able to yep. even, you know, compare yeah. to that. Yeah. And yet here we are in middle America, Arkansas, and we, and, and the, the, the guy who headed the construction of it, this was sort of his last legacy mm-hmm. course. Yeah. And he wanted it to literally be a legacy course. Yeah, yeah. 
Sounds like he pulled it it off. I think he did, yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Man, that's cool. Yeah, I think to to your point, this area specifically here, but just even around the Ozarks in general, I feel like it just it's an underlooked place and people who've lived here for so many years and you know, grew up here, we we realize like what we have and there's all these different things you can do, whether it's mountain biking, you're hunting and fishing, all these world class outdoor opportunities that's just kinda like right here in the middle of Arkansas and not many people know about it and but they're starting to find out about it. And so with that, the last couple of years, especially with COVID, I imagine you guys have probably seen even more with the population boom that's going on here and people being stuck. They don't have anything to do during COVID. What's been going on for you guys the last several years? Well, let me tell you, the, there's been two things in my business history that have impacted the business more than anything else. Number one was the advent of the Internet. Okay. Because people then, instead of just having the uh, world resorts that could afford uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to advertise, it leveled the playing field. Because I could have an internet site just like Holiday Inn Resorts or uh, Zantara or whatever. I I could have my own website, buffaloriver.com, which is a miracle in itself, but it, it's one of those things where that advent had a, the, one of the greatest impacts on business as anything. Mm-hmm. The second one, social media. Mm, yeah. Once the iPhone came along where you could snap pictures, put it on Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook, Everybody had to go do the same thing. Yeah. All of your buddies. Yeah. So if you went to Whitaker Point, if you went to the Goat Trail, if you went to Lost Valley, if you canoed down to Buffalo, if you did the zip line, if you did the mountain bike course, it all hit social media. Mm-hmm. So it was the internet times ten. Yeah. And and many businesses don't really recognize that. But those are the two most significant impacts of business for the outdoor business that have happened in my history. Yeah, yeah, I totally, I mean, your your page, I was looking at it, incredible photography. I mean, it's not hard to, when you look around this place to, the, to have the photos that you have, but when you see it, I mean, you can't, you can't see that and not want to come here. Well, you know, we, we hope, there, there's, a, there's, there's something called the wow factor. Mm-hmm. And the wow factor is, you know where you're going, you know, you've seen pictures of it and all that kind of stuff, but when you actually open the door to a cabin or step out onto Whitaker Point or see the first big bluff as you're canoeing down the river, yeah. the word that comes out of your mind is wow. wow. Yeah. And so with our cabins, we try to have that factor. We try to have when you walk in that door, whether you're a couple, uh, you know, or, or a family um, or a group of friends just getting together, um, when you walk in, we want you to go, wow. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I feel it. I mean, you, you feel it when you walk in here, when you go on any float and you come around the bend and you're looking up at this bluff that's 200, 300 feet high, you feel it at every step of the way. For you, uh, if you had to pick, and I, I, don't, I don't even know if I can ask you this, but if you had to pick a favorite float on the buffalo, if, you know, if you could only float one more time, what would you go do? What what float are you running? 
One more time, it would be Ponca de Kyle's. Ponca de Kyle's. And, you know, you hear people saying, oh, I've done that a hundred times. No, you haven't. I've done it a hundred times, but it took me 40 years to do it. Oh, yeah. You know, because some years you run it once, maybe twice. Some years you run it five or six times. Mm -hmm. But in order to get up to a hundred, you got to do it for many years over and over and over and over again. Yeah, that's a lot. And, uh, um, but of all the floats I've done all over the world, I've done 88 rivers, and my goal is to do at least 100. 88? I've done, I've paddled 88 rivers, and Ponca de Kyle's would be the top of the top. Really? Right here, in your backyard, basically. In your backyard. That's and you know what's funny is anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. It's not a class five whitewater river, and those are fun, yeah. and they can be spectacular. Uh, Ponca down to Kyle's in the springtime, Anybody can do it. Raft, kayak. You know, I have parents come in and say, well, I've got a 10-year-old son. What do I do with him? Well, don't put him in the middle of a canoe. Put him in a kayak. Yeah. Well, he's never been in a kayak before. That's okay. His his learning curve will go straight up for about three minutes, and then he's a bumblebee on water. Mm. And when you turn over, he'll rescue you. Yeah. Yeah. And you've probably where where all have you gone around and what other rivers? Eighty eight rivers. You must have made it a point to go to all these different places. Where have you been? Um, I've I've been all over. Um, the United States, of course, is the majority of them. Yeah. Uh, but when you go out east to the uh, Penobscot and Maine, to the uh, Ohio Pile in Pennsylvania, to the Cherry and Cheat in West Virginia, to uh, the Little Tennessee, the Nolichucky, the French Broad, the Chattooga, the Natahala in North Carolina, Tennessee, uh, Clear River in Florida, um, go up to Michigan, go uh, to the Rio Grande in Texas, go out west to the Snake, the Hobbit, the uh, Colorado, the, oh gosh, yeah. Out in Oregon, you got the Rogue, the... Golly. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm a river. That r- Rivers is what I do. Mm-hmm. Hey, in Arkansas, there's 10 or 12 great... You know, in 19, I believe it was 80, I did an article for Canoe Magazine on the top 10 rivers of Arkansas. Mm. So the Buffalo, of course, number one. Number but one, the, yeah. but But then a little white water, you go to the Big Piney and the Mulberry, and then... Uh, for a little fun, you go to the Spring River, and for a little fishing, you go to the Strawberry, and then you go down to the Cache and look for uh, the Ivory Bill Woodpecker, and and then you go down to uh, the Cossetot, which is, you know, Cossetot means skull crusher. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and and so it's got great hot water, but so does Baker Creek, which runs parallel to it, and uh, uh, the, the, we just have the Arkansas has probably one of the best river profiles of any state in. America. Yeah. Man, that's incredible. Some of those, I hadn't heard of the strawberry. What you said going over there to fish? It's, it's over in eastern Arkansas. Eastern yeah. Arkansas. And what do you, is it mostly, is it good smallmouth, large mouth? Yeah, smallmouth. Gotcha. Are you, are you an angler too? Do you, a lot of times when you're going to these rivers, are you fishing or are you mostly there just to? No, I'm there to paddle. Paddle. But my wife is a fisher woman. Okay. And my first date with her, I took her down Ponca to 
Pruitt, no, Ponca to Kyle's on a Sunday afternoon, uh, bright sunlight. We put in the Ponca Bridge, you know, 200 canoes in front of us that day. We didn't put in until late, but, uh, but her 15 first casts, she brought in a smallmouth bass. No way. 15 in a row. 15 in a row. At behind 200 people in front of you? I was like, you have got to be kidding. Golly. We went out to the New River one time in uh, uh, West Virginia, or no, uh, yeah, West Virginia, and uh, uh, the Cabela's fishing team was there. Mm. Well, my wife, we knew the outfitter. Mm, okay. We were, had a good relationship. My wife, being my wife, worms her way into this trip with these Cabela's professional fishing team. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, she insists that they all go first. She doesn't want to interfere with anything they do. At the end of the day, who had the most fish and the biggest fish? Your wife? Rhonda. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Just, she knows how to fish. She's a fishy lady. She can do it. Man, that's insane. We uh, we were we were talking with... Um, Dwayne Hayda, we interviewed Dwayne Hayda a couple years ago. I don't, or not a couple years ago, a couple episodes ago. And um, he's he's kind of a local lo- legend, fly fisherman. And um, he was just talking about some people, they just have a knack. They have, they're a fishy person. They just know how to catch these fish and draw them out of the holes that they're sitting in up under the bank and the logs. Sounds like your wife's got a little she's, bit of that in her. She's got it. I mean, um, you know, when Bill Dance gave her a, uh, autographed hat in the elevator, she turned backflips. Mm-hmm. When she met wild man Steve Wilson for the very first time, he was her hero, and now she's his. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I wanted one of one of the floats that's on my kind of bucket list, and I haven't done it yet, and I'm I'm sure you have. Um, is rush to Buffalo uh, or to Buffalo Landing to back out to the white. Um, it's kind of the last stretch of the river that's really almost untouched by by people in that it's like a, what, 25-mile stretch, 30-mile stretch where there's no put-in points or takeout points, and you're there. It's like a two- or three-day trip. Have you done that float a couple times? I have done it, uh, well, I can't count how many times I've done it, at least five. Um, here's what Rhonda and I like to do. It's a three-day canoe trip. Yeah. We like to take five. Oh, really? So what you do is you put in at Rush, you go for a day, you set up camp, and you don't break camp for two days. Okay. And then you do the same thing again. Yeah. And that that day that you spend in camp on the river, you may see two, three canoes go by maybe. That's crazy. Um, But it's probably the most relaxed you will ever be in your life mm. because the only thing you have to do is cook. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only thing there is. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah, you might swim, you might paddle upstream, you might paddle downstream a little ways, you might fish, uh, wade fish, paddle fish, wh- whatever you want to do. But you literally, your agenda is nothing. Mm. And it is probably the most relaxed you will ever be. Yeah. Uh, and, and, <laughs> The last time we did it was on Rhonda's birthday. I, I snuck a a, uh, a bait caster on a rod into the boat, 
kind of hid it, covered it up with gear and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And gave it to her. This was on day three was her birthday. Okay. And uh, a bait caster for me is something to untangle. Mm-hmm. For her, it's put on a, a, a heavy bait and, and throw it out there just before the sun sets and troll it back across and... She she already knew how to use it. Yeah, <laughs> and used it to perfection. Golly, yeah. Bait, I have a hard time with bait casters. I get all twisted up and tangled. I'm probably more like you in that sense. So that's cool. Yeah, that's definitely. It sounds like my kind of trip. I mean, it's it's been one that's like you kind of just got to plan. You got to plan a couple of days and and have the extra time to go out there and do that. But I'm glad you said that because now I'll probably take even a, an extra day or two. To, to slow down and, and really set up camp along that, that flow. So the last time we did this, uh, we camped one day on a, on a gravel bar and across was a little bit of bluff and at the end of that bluff was a creek coming in. And I thought, well, I'm going to go explore that creek. Um, I, I think I just swam across. It was warm enough. It was late summer and, and, uh, worked my way through the reeds that were at the mouth of this creek and then started up the creek and up the hill and up the hill. And I came to this barrel and I'm thinking, what the world's a barrel doing in the creek here? And then I went on up about another 20 yards or so and here's the pipe coming out of the spring with water coming out of it. Oh, Well, in my mind, I'm thinking barrel with water. I go back down and what I hadn't seen because of the way the barrel was positioned, I didn't see the top of it. The top of it had a nice big round even hole in it. This was a moonshine still. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> and so then I go on up and I go past the pipe and here's the level platform with mason jars and the worm mm. and all the components of a moonshine still. This is in the 2000s. Wow. Where on earth in the United States of America can you do that? Yeah. The lower Buffalo wilderness. Yeah, it sounds like that last couple of miles. Wow. That's crazy. It's just that remote. I mean, for you to go on that float and to see two or three other people in a four or five day stretch, that's remote. There's not yeah. many places like that. Like, yeah. No, they're not. Yeah. And And I will tell you this. You can pick almost any day of the year and be alone on the river. Mm-hmm. It's all a matter of when. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Memorial Day Saturday two years ago, Ron and I put in at Steel Creek at 7 a.m. And when we got to Kyle's, the only people we had seen were those camped on the side of the river. Yeah. We never saw another boat on the water. Gotcha. On Memorial Day. That's insane. You just beat them to it. You got out there ahead of them. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good pro tip if you're just trying to relax and dodge the crowds. Go out early. Beat them. How, how, so the lower Buffalo being that that has more water, is that, do you guys um, service that area of the river? No, the National Park Service divides the river into three sections, upper, middle, and lower. Okay. And so each outfitter can put in or take out in his region. Gotcha. So if you're in Ponca, our region goes down to Highway 123 Bridge. So we can put in a boat at Ponca and take it out at the lower river. But we cannot put in a boat 
below the Highway 123 bridge. Mm. Okay. And when you live in Ponca, if you're driving to Highway 123 to put in a boat, driving to Mount Hershey or Woolham or Bakerford or somewhere like that to pull it out, you are losing money. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so far. And, and so um, each outfitter primarily works their own other than long multi-day canoe rentals. Mm-hmm. They're primarily working their own region. Gotcha. And then the, the multi-day ones can, so you guys, you guys can't even do that because it's not in your region. Is that what you're saying? No. If, if uh, During the spring when the water's up at Ponca, we can put you in here and take you out at the White River. Oh, you or can? Or we can take you out at the Highway 65 Bridge or we can take you out at the Highway 14 Bridge. Gotcha. I mean, they just have to start in the They have region. to start here. I hear you. Uh, Wild Bill down at Buffalo Point, he can bring a canoe up to Ponca and put it in as long as it takes out mm. down at Wild Bill's. Yeah, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, uh, man, that's cool. I, I, I've i been wanting to do some multi-day floats. And um, Daniel and I, we tried last year, we were going to go do it and just, you know, ended up raining like the couple of days before that. And it just flooded out and we couldn't go do it. But it's on our list to get back out here and, and put together a three or four day float. It'd be a good time. Well, looking at that lower wilderness area, late summer, right after school starts, there's normally enough water to do it. Mm-hmm. And there's not as many people. Yeah. And, you know? and probably more predictable weather. Well, you know, and, and, and plus the people that are doing real multi-days, they're not looking for late August. They're looking for late June, early July. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man, it's cool. There's just so many opportunities out here and uh, to get on the river and all, I mean, different launch points. You can see if you want to go for scenery, if you want to go just for fishing, um, it's just well, a cool dynamic and, river. And one of the successes for Buffalo Outdoor Center is we are s- in such close proximity to all the hiking trails. Mm-hmm. So between uh, Hideout Holla and the Goat Trail and the Buffalo River Trail and Lost Valley and Whitaker Point, you've got some of the best trails anywhere in middle America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We, I've done Hemden Hollow. We did that, Dane and I, with his dad a couple of years, how was, several years ago. It was probably 10 or so years ago. I mean, as a young boy walking through, and then you come up on that waterfall coming down 120 feet or however tall it is. It's one of those things, back to what you were saying about the wow factor. Yeah. You come down there, you look up, and that's the only word you can think of. It's just, wow, look at that view. And it sounds, I mean, there's just tons of those opportunities around here. There are endless number. Yeah. Endless. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're coming towards the end here. I wanted to give you a chance to talk about um, the film Undamned that's, uh, that's premiering. It's already been released. Um, you have a part in that film. Um, they, they came and interviewed you. Tell me a little bit about that film and, and what it is, what, what the story is, the point of it, and uh, kind of your involvement in, in that. Well, my involvement was um, a, a, a person they interviewed. Right. Uh, they interviewed uh, Bill Scruggs at Wild Bill's and uh, Tim Ernst, who's the famous photographer, hiker, mm-hmm. uh, a, a representative from the National Park Service. So there were several interviews in it. But uh, I, I share a perspective that uh, not everybody has. And so... Um, uh, I was I was very fortunate and privileged to be a part of it. it. It's a it's a film 
uh, about the Buffalo River and about the fisheries and the hiking and the canoeing and uh, a small part of the history, um, basically done for the uh, 50th anniversary of the Buffalo National River. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's being um, um, shown at theaters as a, as a premiere film. Uh, it's already been in Little Rock and Fort Smith, Mountain Home. I think it's coming to Harrison very soon. Um, probably Northwest Arkansas. Um, it, it's, it's, it was a privilege as it has been to be, you know, Larry Foley's, uh, uh, the Buffalo flows. Uh, I was interviewed in it and, and it, it's, it's been a privilege for me to be in all of the media that I've been in over the years. Uh, I, I, I sometimes tell people that it's not me. It's just where I am and what I do. Mm. Maybe a little bit of me. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit of both for sure. Um, oh. for, for you, having done so many of these media things and just being someone that, you know, people know you, you're the, the founder of Buffalo Outdoor Center. For you, what what do you kind of, are there any messages you want to leave to people or, um, you know, for you thinking about just the impact that you've had, what do you kind of want to be remembered for, you know, the legacy you want to leave um, to your family, to future outdoorsmen, people who come visit the area? What would you kind of say to them? You know, um, I don't know that I've really ever given that a tremendous amount of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the founder of Buffalo Outdoor Center has uh, a great title. Um, but for me, it was more about following my passion. Mm-hmm. I, I did what I did because I loved it. I, I never really considered myself at work. Yeah. Um, I, I spent 80 hours a week at Buffalo Outdoor Center. And I, I, I still raised two girls and a stepson. Um, I've, I'm privileged to have done that. Um, my kids are very important to me and my grandkids now. Yeah. Um, but as far as, you know, I, I, I just hope that I've shared uh, my vision of of competing at the top uh, with product and services and and yet being humble enough to uh, sort of making a tremendous amount of money was never my goal. Mm, right. uh, I, I'm, I'm not a flashy uh, bling person. Right. Um, I, I did what I did because um, that's what I wanted to do. And, and really, over the years, I'm my biggest competitor, is me. Mm. Uh, I never looked at my neighbors or other people in the same business as my competitors. I just looked at what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it better. And, um, you know, that's that's sort of who I am. I, I, think, I think now the important thing to me is uh, the Buffalo River Foundation. Okay. It's I, I'm I'm on the board and and uh, have been president and it's it's my way of giving back to the Buffalo what it has given to me mm-hmm. and the Buffalo River Foundation uh, if you know the Nature Conservancy we're the Nature Conservancy of the Buffalo River watershed okay so we take conservation easements that doesn't mean it's a scenic easement it doesn't mean that you can have a whole bunch of people trampling on your property it, it, it's your when you're the landowner of property within the buffalo it gives you the ability to put in writing on a deed 
what happens to that property for the infamy mm. till the for the rest of its life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you don't want it logged, if you don't want new roads, if you don't want it developed, if you don't want it sprayed with herbicides or uh, uh, and and the litany is long, but the choices are yours. As and, the landowner. As the landowner. Mm. And so it's a tremendous power given to the landowner by doing a conservation easement. And you don't have to do, you can do one thing. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do them all. I've chosen, I've given some uh, easements on property that's in the drainage of the Buffalo River, the land I own, and I've pretty much run the gamut on everything. I just want to leave it like it is. Yeah. Um, but that's important to me. Mm-hmm. And and it's important to me. What's funny is, is, People say, well, you're now, you've turned into a conservationist. In 1967, I was Youth Conservationist of the Year in Arkansas. Yeah, wow. The conservationist of the year that year was Ken Smith, who wrote the Buffalo River Country Book. Oh, cool. That's when we met. Yeah. And, and so the Buffalo River, for me, conserving, being a part of the conservation of the Buffalo River has been in my veins way, way longer mm. than the success of Buffalo Outdoor Center. Yeah. And and looking to the future, you know, obviously generations to come, things will change. People will come and go and, you know, you'll have new faces and new businesses. What What is your, do you hope that it remains the same as you look to the next 100 years, 100 years from now, do you hope it's the exact same or do you expect things to change? Do you want them to change? What What is the best future for this area of, of Arkansas? You know, um, it's really interesting because when you look at portions of Wyoming and Colorado and uh, western states that have been influenced by the tremendous population of the West Coast, mm-hmm. land prices that were $500 an acre are now... 10,000 an acre. And and I can see some of that happening here as Northwest Arkansas population has increased and then doubled and it's it'll soon double again. Right. Um, there are enough percentage of that type of population that wants a little chunk of this over here. Mm-hmm. My, my hope is, is that they don't divide it up into such small portions that it, it becomes a... Uh, ranchette type setting yeah yeah uh the 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 landowners uh that's one of the things a a conservation easement can do Mm -hmm. is by by putting a conservation easement on larger piece of properties um it even if they are divided some there's no new building, no new construction, or, or if that's what you choose. Right. And that's kind of what I choose. I, I think there's there's going to be plenty of, uh, there already is plenty of places to rent. Um, we are a materialistic society, so we all want to own our own little piece. Sure. But, uh, but the real fact is in an area like the Buffalo River watershed, private ownership, we own... I believe it's about uh, 60% of the Buffalo River watershed is in private ownership. Yeah. And so um, protecting that is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and and current, current landowners, some of them get that. Some of them 
don't get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but 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 for me, I'd I'd just like to see more protection in place, even with current landowners, and generations later in that same family. Yeah. Uh, that protection will be invaluable. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a hundred percent. If you've never been here and you don't know what we're talking about in terms of seeing this, you need to come here and see it and you'll be on the same page of this place needs to be protected because it's just like we were talking about. It kind of transports you back in time. It has a serenity, a peace to it. Like you just can't find in so many other places in today's especially busy world. Um, So really just a tremendous place. And again, you know, compliments to you. You built a tremendous business here impacted a lot of people and outdoorsmen who are just trying to connect and get outside and um, they want to, they want to, you know, be a small part of this area. Um, so just wanted to say thank you. Thank you again for having us here. Any, any last words for our listeners or for anyone listening to, to uh, you? Thank you. Thank you. And, and thank anyone that's listening because uh, I'm just an old canoe operator from Ponca. There you go. <laughs> I like it. To our listeners, thank you guys for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it with a friend or on social media. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time. This podcast is hosted by Kyle Veet, co-hosted by Adam Treese and Kyle Plunkett, and produced by Daniel Matthews. To sponsor an episode or for general advertising inquiries, reach out to us at the Ozark Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time.